0: you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn to the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12. will be our portion of Scripture this evening, Zechariah chapter 12 through chapter 14. As I was thinking about this message this evening, I was reminded of a time in seminary over 20 years ago when I was here studying at the Master's Seminary, walked into a classroom on the first day of class and was told by the professor that there was going to be a pop quiz. Pop quiz for seminary students take out a blank sheet of paper, and we were instructed to write down every book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in order spelled correctly. Well, we got to work and, of course, couldn't use any help, so I wrote down all of the books of the Bible, and then the time came for us to grade our own work. And, much to my chagrin, I did not get them all correct. I missed one. I got all of the books of the Bible in the correct order, but I misspelled the very book that we are studying this evening. Z-A-C-H-A-R-I-A-H. That might be the more or less Greek rendition of it. When you get to the New Testament, you meet John the Baptist's dad. He's Zacharias with an A after the Z, but that is definitely not how you spell the Hebrew prophet who you're studying tonight. And uh, sure there are some third graders out there hearing this who are very disappointed in me because I know that our third grade Sunday school class, they could have aced that pop quiz better than I did. Well, no pop quizzes tonight, and uh, even more important, of course, than knowing how to spell the name Zechariah is understanding what the name Zechariah means because his name really reflects the theme of the book. His name means... His name means the Lord remembers. His name means the Lord remembers, and that really is the theme of this book. This book, this prophecy, was given in the mid part of the 6th century B.C., that's the 500s B.C. It was given during the time of Zerubbabel, when Zerubbabel and a group of exiles returned from Babylon to Israel, to Judah, to Jerusalem with the intent of rebuilding the temple. They came probably around the year 535 B.C., and they initially laid the groundwork for the temple, they established the foundation of the temple, but some of the neighboring groups complained to Cyrus, the king of the Persians, and the work was forced to stop. The people were very discouraged. They felt overwhelmed by the antagonism of their enemies. They felt as if God had forgotten them. After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, now returning to the land, they sensed that God had perhaps abandoned his promises, forgotten his covenant, neglected his people. And so, the Lord sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people that God indeed had not forgotten them. And Zechariah's name then is the theme of this book. The Lord remembers. He remembers His covenant promises to His people. And so, Haggai and Zechariah encouraged the people not to be afraid of the neighboring groups and instead to continue rebuilding the temple And they did indeed complete the temple in the year 516 BC, which is 70 years after it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the year 586. And all of that is recorded in terms of Zechariah's prophecies with regard to encouraging the people to rebuild the temple in chapters 1 through 8 of the book of Zechariah. And of course, tonight we're in the fifth of a five-part series, Abner Chow opened up with part one and part two in chapters one through six, then Joe Zakovich, chapters seven and eight, covering that part of Zechariah's prophetic ministry. But the book of Zechariah ends with Zechariah again delivering two oracles to the people of Israel to remind them that they had not been forgotten by the Lord. In fact, the Lord had a plan for his people, a plan that not only included that generation of exiles returning from Babylon to Judah, but a plan that extended to the end of the age, a plan for Israel in which God not only would remember his covenant, but fulfill it in every respect. The Lord remembers. And so that theme encouraged the hearts of the people, through Haggai and through Zechariah. And the Lord, by revealing these truths about the future, enabled his people to press on in the present. And even as Abner made that point this morning from Daniel chapter 7, the reason the Lord has revealed to us truth about the future is so that we can be faithful in In the present. That was Zechariah's ministry to his generation. And the truth of his revelation recorded in these chapters continues to encourage every generation of believers to be faithful in the present. Now, before we dig into this second oracle of Zechariah recorded in chapters 12 to 14, I do want to just pause and note the fact that less than six months ago, on March 10th of this year, our pastor preached a message on this text. And in fact, I would highly recommend that at some point this week, you find that message and you listen to it because it was epic. It was epic because this text is epic It was epic because it was a shepherd's conference, and I was sitting down here on the front row next to Mike Riccardi and Abner Chow and a number of the other men, and there were literal fist bumps happening on the front row because we were so excited about what our pastor was preaching from this passage. So you have to listen to that message. Okay. Okay. Last week, we looked at chapters 9 to 11, and I want to just quickly remind you what was in those chapters because, in those chapters, the prophet Zechariah revealed or proclaimed, declared a revelation from the Lord in which he foretold 10 prophetic events, all of which were future from his vantage point as he looked ahead at what the Lord would do in the future for Israel, demonstrating that the Lord remembered his people. That list of prophetic events, there were 10 of them that we looked at last week, started with the return of additional exiles from Persia to Israel, it's in Zechariah 9, 11, and 12, and that was fulfilled with the return of Ezra and Nehemiah and those who came with them. And then Zechariah predicted the rise of the Greek conquest, specifically the conquest of Alexander the Great in Zechariah 9, verses 1 to 6. He actually foretold the exact path that Alexander would take as he conquered city by city from Damascus to Tyre to Sidon, down south into Philistia. And then thirdly, Zechariah foretold the revolt of the Maccabees in Zechariah 9, verse 13, when he explained that the citizens, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, would rebel against and overthrow their Greek overlords. And that took place during the reign of the Seleucids, In the year 168 and following, when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple and the Maccabees revolted and they overthrew their Greek conquerors. In fact, as we mentioned last week, in the year BC 164, 164 BC, the temple was rededicated and that celebration continues to be celebrated today in the holiday known as Hanukkah. And then, fourthly, Zechariah foretold the rejection of the Messiah. In Zechariah 9.9, he foretold the triumphal entry. And then in Zechariah 14, verses 7 to 14, he foretold the fact that the Messiah would be rejected, the good shepherd would be rejected by his own people, and he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In fact, the religious leaders would value his price, the price on Jesus' head, at 30 pieces of silver, and Zechariah foretold that. And then fifth, he foretold the ruin of the nations during the Roman conquest in the first six verses of Zechariah 14, this time not the conquest of the Greeks in which Israel was spared, but rather the conquest of the Romans in which the flock of Israel would be decimated, In AD 70, Titus Vespasian marched on Jerusalem, destroyed the city and the temple. That really was the first of three Jewish-Roman wars, the third of which ended in the year 135 when Roman Emperor Hadrian destroyed the entire nation and dispersed the Jewish people everywhere. And as we said last week, from 135 all the way through the end of 1947 into 1948, there was no Jewish nation. The nation of Israel ceased to exist, only being reestablished on May 14th of 1948, which was 75 years ago. The sixth of those ten prophecies was that Zechariah foretold the redemption of Gentiles. He did that in Zechariah 9 verse 7 when he talked about the fact that there would be a remnant of Philistines, the Philistine being a non-Semitic people, actually European people who were living in and near Israel. They had migrated there in the 12th century BC, and Zechariah promised that as a representative of all Gentile peoples, God would save even a remnant of Philistines. And of course, that begins to be fulfilled in the church age. And then Zechariah promised or foretold the return of the people, the regathering of the nation. And as we talked about last week, that was fulfilled in 1948. It began to be fulfilled. And of course, there are still those who are returning to the nation of Israel. But isn't it fascinating to think about the fact that for the better part of 1800 Years, or at least more than 1,700 years, there was no nation of Israel. From A.D. 135 until 1948, the nation of Israel did not exist. And now we see the fulfillment of that promise, as Zechariah himself foretold in Zechariah 10, verses 6 through 12. Now, the reason I'm rehearsing this is because I think it's important to understand that out of the 10 prophecies in Zechariah 9 to 11, those seven prophecies, which I just reiterated, all seven of them have either been fully fulfilled or are in the process of being fulfilled. What an amazing thing to consider when it comes to the credibility of the prophet Zechariah. How do we know that this truly was revelation from God because... Writing in the 500s BC, Zechariah is able to predict with accuracy all of these future events. And what that means then is that we have high confidence when it comes to the final three events that he predicted which have not yet been fulfilled. And those three events, as we talked about last week, would be The reign or rise of the Antichrist, the repentance of the nation of Israel, and the return of the Messiah. And you can see Zechariah foretell the reign of Antichrist in chapter 11, verses 15 to 17, when he compares the good shepherd with an evil shepherd who will arise and then the repentance of Israel is described in chapter 10, verses 6 through 12, along with the return and the return of Christ himself in Zechariah 9, verses 10 to 17. But the fulfillment of the first seven give us absolute confidence that what Zechariah foretells is future history, meaning that his predictions Accord with reality because they are given by the God of history who has ordained these events and who declares the end from the beginning. We also talked last week about the right response to all of this, which I think is highlighted in the first part of chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and that is to live in humble dependence and holy devotion and have a hope-filled disposition, which again underscores the reason why the future, why eschatology, why knowing what will come to pass is so valuable for you as a follower of the Lord Jesus. It humbles you in dependence on him in the present. It motivates your holiness in devotion to him, and it gives you hope as you look to him as your deliverer in all things. Well, that was a review of the first oracle, but it was necessary for us to review that in order to understand the second oracle that Zechariah gives, because the second oracle builds on and expands on the first, specifically looking at those final three prophecies which have not yet been fulfilled. You can see there in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, that this is the oracle of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. The word oracle actually means burden. This is the burden that was Zechariah's to deliver. And to be honest, there is some heavy revelation in this passage. And yet, in spite of all the judgment and in spite of all the carnage at its core, this oracle is an oracle of salvation and an oracle that ought to, rejo- to, ought to result in joy and thanksgiving. Chapter 12 verse 1, the second sentence there, thus declares Yahweh who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. So just in case we are confused about the source of this revelation, this is from the Lord himself, and his credentials don't need to be stated, but he articulates them here for us. He's the creator of the universe, the creator of this earth, the creator of each person who inhabits this earth. He is the Lord of history, and therefore, we can trust, in fact, we can establish our lives and our eternities on the truthfulness of what is revealed in this text. So if we think about those three categories of prophecy that have not yet been fulfilled, the final three in our list of ten from the first oracle, the rise of the Antichrist, we might change that to the rage of the Antichrist and his armies, because that's what we see in this text, to then the repentance of Israel, or perhaps we might say the regeneration of Israel, because that is in fact what we see in this text. To the return of the Messiah, a return to rescue his people and to reign over all. So it's those three final prophecies from the first ten that are expanded on in this text. And so this second oracle entirely looks to the future. And as we consider this second oracle of Zechariah, we have another list of ten. Another list of ten. Ten prophetic events that will accompany the second coming. Ten prophetic events that will accompany the return of Christ. This entire oracle focuses on the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just to remind you a little bit of the timeline of biblical eschatology or last things, I think it's helpful to just run through the fact that we are currently in the church age. In fact, if we had time this evening and... We probably don't, so I won't. We could look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, that well-known passage in which Daniel talks about the fact that there is a certain amount of time appointed specifically for the nation of Israel. And if you dig into that text, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, you find that there is a period of years from the, the official the official declaration by King Artaxerxes I, probably in the year 446 BC, right around there. It's recorded in Nehemiah chapter two. There's a period of time from when that declaration is given by Artaxerxes until the time that the Messiah will be killed. And if you do the calculations, what you find out is that that time period precisely points to the Passion Week of Jesus Christ. There is no one else in all of human history who could fulfill Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27 other than Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah predicted in Daniel chapter 9. But what Daniel goes on to say, and again, you'll have to study that text, but he goes on to say that after the death of the Messiah and after what is an indeterminable gap that there will yet be, Seven more years where God focuses specifically on Israel in redemptive history. That gap between the death of the Messiah and that final seven years in the New Testament is called the times of the Gentiles, or Paul in Romans 11 calls it the period of the fullness of the Gentiles. It is the church age, and that's the period of time that we are currently in. We're in the church age. But there will come a time when the church will be raptured. And when the church is raptured, it will correspond with the beginning of what is known as Daniel's 70th week. That period of seven years reserved in redemption history for God to return his gaze and his focus on the nation of Israel. Now in the book of Revelation, that period of time, that seven years, is known as the Great tribulation. And you can find details about that seven-year period starting in Revelation chapter 6 all the way through Revelation chapter 18. And what you find is that it is a period of intense judgment and also a time in which those who come to saving faith post-rapture are severely persecuted. There's a group of Jews who will come to saving faith during that period of time, known as the 144,000. And they will be a remnant of believers, of Jewish believers, who are faithful to Christ in spite of that persecution. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, it actually talks about the fact that there will be a man, a prince. 2 Thessalonians 2 calls him a man of lawlessness, Revelation calls him the Antichrist who arises and actually makes a treaty with Israel at the beginning of that period of time, but halfway through that seven-year period, the Antichrist breaks that treaty, and he comes with all of his forces, which happen to represent all of the global armies on earth, to attack Israel. And that's at the end of the tribulation. And they all gather for a battle that is known as the Battle of Armageddon. And Armageddon is named for a small little hill north of Jerusalem. It's about 65 miles north of Jerusalem called Megiddo. And then there's a valley, the Valley of Jezreel, where the armies of the Antichrist will gather for the Battle of Armageddon. Now, sometimes think that the entire battle will only be there, but the reality is that that probably represents just the northernmost edge of the forces of the Antichrist because when you put all of the biblical evidence together, it becomes clear that armies from every direction are going to be converging on Israel. It will be Israel's darkest hour, and it will be the moment of their near annihilation. That's the context for this oracle, Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14. Okay. Now, as we come to the end of the tribulation period, there is an eschatological term that gets used often throughout the Old Testament. It's also used in the New Testament to refer to God's wrath Being poured out in vengeance on his enemies, especially on that day at the end of the age. And that term is called the day of the Lord. You'll see that actually in chapter 14, verse 1. where it says that this is a day for Yahweh, right? Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh, or the day of the Lord is coming when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And that actually serves as a key repeated theme throughout these chapters. In fact, 17 times in these chapters, Zechariah repeats the phrase, "...in that day." in that day, in that day. And 16 times he repeats the phrase, it will be. In that day, it will be. Repeated, staccato, over and over and over throughout this passage, so that when you think about what is the theme of Zechariah 12 to 14, the theme is the day of the Lord, which is set against the battle of Armageddon, when Antichrist and his forces think that they have won and Israel appears to be completely defeated, then the Lord will appear, and in that day, he will have victory. You see the day of the Lord referred to in 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, the book of Revelation, and all throughout the minor prophets, especially in places like the book of Joel and in Zephaniah. But here it is, in Zechariah, And if you were to read, for example, Revelation chapter 16, verses 14 and 16, you would find that the Antichrist will gather the kings of the world together for the war of the great day of God. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All right, well, all of that was necessary context for you to understand these 10 prophetic events that Zechariah reveals or that the Lord reveals through Zechariah in this oracle. All of these events surround and are connected to and accompany the day of the Lord, the climactic end of the tribulation, the climactic end of the age, the climactic end of human history before the millennial kingdom. What are those 10 events? And again, we're going to take these events in chronological order, not in the order that Zechariah presents them in the text. And that, as we explained last week, is because Zechariah presents things in a fashion that is more about the overall effect of all of these details together and not so concerned with being in chronological order. But the first of these 10 events is the refinement of the remnant. The refinement of the remnant. And we find this in Zechariah 13, verses 7 to 9. In verse 7, we have a prophecy that actually is fulfilled in Christ's first coming. But you'll see how Zechariah is going to take that and immediately apply it to the remnant of Jewish believers at the end of the age. Verse 7 of chapter 13 Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Of course, this is a reference to the betrayal and execution of our Lord Jesus, and the fact that even on the night of his arrest, the disciples, fearful for their own safety, scattered into the darkness. And the gospel writers cite this passage and say that that was fulfilled in that moment. In many ways, that was simply a foreshadowing of the fact that the remnant of believers would be persecuted throughout the entire church age. And as we come into the tribulation period now, a remnant of Jewish believers Romans chapter 11 talks a lot about the remnant of Jewish believers. We have those Jewish believers encompassing the 144,000 who are severely persecuted by the Antichrist and an entire global system that hates Yahweh and anyone associated with him. And so verses 8 and 9 talk about how this fire of persecution will refine the remnant. If we look at the next verse, verse 8. It will be in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and become, will be cut off and breathe their last. But the third, a third part will be left in it. And I will bring that third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them And I will say they are my people and they will say Yahweh is my God. What a beautiful picture here of the remnant resting in the sovereign hand and security of the Lord. And yet a sobering prophecy because at least two-thirds, two parts are going to be destroyed as God winnows his people Protecting his elect. We go from the refinement of the remnant to, secondly, the rampage of the nations. The rampage of the nations. How is it that God's people will be refined through the fire of persecution? It will be as a result of this global assault. Look at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2. Yahweh says, Indeed, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city will go into exile. But those left of the people will not be cut off from the city. We get a little bit more detail about this in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. There. We see the prophet say, behold, and of course he is giving a revelation from the Lord, so it's the Lord speaking, behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples all around. Now the one in siege against Jerusalem will also be against Judah, but it will be in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who heave it up will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against Jerusalem. So what we see here, and as we think about the book of Revelation and also what's recorded at the end of Daniel chapter 11, what we understand is that this is Antichrist and his agents having provoked the kings of the earth to all coordinate an attack on Israel. This because at the halfway point of the tribulation, the Antichrist Ends the Jewish sacrificial offerings and demands that he alone be worshipped, and when the people refuse, he retaliates. And so he brings this massive array of military force against Israel. What's amazing to consider is that although, although you have a remnant of Jewish people who are followers of Jesus at this point, the 144,000, the vast majority of Israelites at this point are still in unbelief, even at the very end of the tribulation period. But that is all going to change. A third event or a third development, we might call it, We have the refinement of the remnant. We have the rampage of the nations. Now in chapter 12, verses four and five, we have what I call the retribution of God that falls on the enemies of Israel. Verse four, in that day, declares Yahweh, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and its riders with madness. But I will open my eyes to watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the people's with blindness, then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through Yahweh of hosts, their God. So we see that as this is happening, the Lord begins to fight on behalf of his people as he causes confusion and bewilderment to befall Israel's enemies, even as he had done on several occasions in the Old Testament, causing them to be confused. Number fourth in our list. Number four in our list. From the retribution of God, we go to the reinforcement of Israel's defenses, the reinforcement of Israel's defenses in verses six, seven, and eight of chapter twelve. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fiery laver among pieces of wood and a fiery torch among sheaves, so they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem will again be inhabited in its own place in Jerusalem. Yahweh also will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, Yahweh will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who stumbles among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of Yahweh before them. And it will be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So the Lord promises to reinforce, to rejuvenate the defenses of his people, to give them strength, again, at their moment of greatest need. But Yahweh promises to do more than simply encourage and strengthen and enliven the people. He promises to do more than to simply equip those of the house of David and of the house of Israel to be strong and like mighty men of old. He promises to personally intervene. And so the fifth development in this passage is the very return of the Messiah, the return of the Messiah. I think it's important, though, to understand that when Christ returns, he will return at that moment where it appeared as if Israel was going to lose. Inhabitants of Jerusalem have been sent into captivity. Many have been killed, right? Two parts, two-thirds at least of the people have been annihilated. The destruction, the death, the desperation is at its most fevered pitch. And just when it looks like all hope is lost, Right the enemy is already in the city the houses have already been plundered chapter 14 verse 2 then in the moment of greatest darkness then Zechariah chapter 14 verse 3 then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when he fights On a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach. To Azel, indeed, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then Yahweh, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. You can read about that same earthquake in Amos chapter one, verse one, verse six. And it will be in that day that there will be no light the luminaries will dwindle. Of course, we know from other places in Scripture that at the end of the tribulation, the sun will turn to blood and the moon will turn to darkness. I think I had that backwards. The sun turns to darkness and the moon turns to blood. Stuff happens in the sky. And verse 7, and it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but it will be that at evening time there will be light because the glory of the Messiah will shine forth. And verse 8, and it will be in that day that living waters, that means fresh water from a spring, will flow out of Jerusalem, and half of them towards the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea, and the other half towards the western sea, that's the Mediterranean, and it will flow in the summer as well as in the winter. Many of the Brooks and rivers in Israel are seasonal, much like Southern California. And the point here is that that river will never stop flowing. What's really interesting is that in Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 9 to 11, we learn that the water from Jerusalem flowing down into the Dead Sea actually turns it into a freshwater lake where fish will be abundant. But isn't this amazing? The Messiah will return, he will return to the Mount of Olives, just as he said he would in Acts chapter 1, when he told his apostles to go and be his witnesses, and then he went up from the Mount of Olives, and they stood there aghast, staring into the sky, and angels had to come down and ask them what they were doing, and tell them in the same way that he went up, he will come back. Where does he return? He returns to the Mount of Olives. And Revelation 19 records this, that he returns as one riding on a white horse. And he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives and there will be an earthquake that is far bigger than that tiny little thing that kept people from church last Sunday. Sorry, I couldn't resist. It was also a hurricane. And it will split the Mount of Olives in two and half of it will go one way and half of it will go the other and the geographical and topographical changes in Jerusalem will be amazing. And in that moment when he returns, the enemies of Israel will know that they are doomed and the people of Israel will know that they are saved. Which brings us to our next point which is really So wonderful. That is number six in our list. And that is the remorse of the people. The remorse of the people. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the houses of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication So that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is the moment of Israel's salvation. Yes, we have the remnant of the 144,000. We have the remnant throughout all of church history described in Romans chapter 11 and then 144,000 in the tribulation. But this will be the moment when every Israelite is redeemed so that Romans 11:26 will be fulfilled and then all Israel will be saved. And of course, this was previewed on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and 3,000 of the people did repent and believe. But that was simply a preview of coming attractions. On this day, in that day, on the great day, the day of the Lord, all Israel will be saved because they will look on the one whom they crucified and rejected and realize that he is in fact their only hope and Savior. And they will weep. And it will be a sorrow that leads to repentance. And it will affect every part of Israeli society. You can see that in the rest of these verses. That the house of David and the house of Nathan, those are references to the royal house. The house of... Levi and the house of the Shimeites, that's a reference to the religious house. The Levites were the priests. Shimei was the grandson of Levi. Nathan was the son of David. Not Nathan the prophet, but Nathan the son of David who was actually in the line of Mary. You can find his name in Luke chapter three. But isn't it interesting that repentance will come to Israel and remorse and they will weep over the Messiah whom they crucified. Verse 12, or verse 11, in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Ramun or Hadadrimmon. Uh, this was the place near Megiddo where Josiah the king was killed, and there was great mourning in Israel when he died. He was the last good king of Judah. He was also the one who led Israel or Judah in national repentance. And then verse 12, And the land will mourn each family alone, the family of the house of David, the family of the house of Nathan, the family of the Levites, the family of the Shimeites, and so on. So this will be an incredible moment. And it will be the climactic moment of the 70 weeks that Daniel prophesied about in Daniel chapter 9. 69 weeks, and the Messiah dies. Then you have this long period, the age or era or times of the Gentiles. And then finally, seven more years, one final week of years. And at the end of it, the very end of it, God comes back. God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, returns, and all Israel will be saved. That's amazing. And then look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. This is... Number seven on our list, the regeneration of Israel, not just their remorse, but their regeneration. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. The fountain there symbolizes the reality of divine forgiveness, of spiritual cleansing, and of the Spirit's work of regeneration. And we don't have time to read all of these verses, but if you were to read verses 2 through 6, you would see that because they are regenerate, the people of Israel will then have no tolerance for any kind of false religion. They'll have no tolerance for any false prophet. It's almost kind of humorous, the false prophets. If there even were any, they come up with excuses for why they're not false prophets anymore. I'm not a false prophet, I'm a farmer. I, no, no, I'm not a false prophet. The, the, the marks you see on my body that would indicate that I'm a false prophet, that's not how that happened. I'm not a false prophet. Don't want to be associated with false prophets. Well, obviously, it's, it's the beginning of the millennial kingdom. You don't want to be a false prophet at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. But it's interesting how Zechariah brings that out in verses 2 through 6. All right, number eight on our list the reckoning of God for the wicked. In Zechariah 14, verses 12 to 15, Zechariah goes back and talks about what will happen to all of the enemies of Yahweh in this day. Now, this will be the plague with which Yahweh will plague all peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. And then the subsequent verses describe kind of divine death sentence. You can read about that in chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. Number nine on our list is then the remarkable reign of the Messiah. Chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one and his name one all the land, verse 10, will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon. Those were the northern and southern borders of Judah. Jerusalem will rise. It will become the capital and the epicenter of the millennial earth. Verse 11, and people will inhabit Jerusalem and there will be no longer Anything devoted to destruction for Jerusalem will be inhabited in security. In other words, the people there will be entirely devoted to the Lord and they will enjoy his perfect peace. And then number 10 on our list is the righteousness of Messiah's rule, which is how Zechariah 14 ends. Zechariah 14 verses 26 to 21, excuse me, verses 16 to 21 Then it will be that any who are left over all the nations or of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship King Yahweh of hosts. It goes on to talk about the fact that they will celebrate the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. According to Ezekiel, that'll be one of three feasts that is celebrated in the Millennial Kingdom along with the Feast of the New Year, and also the Feast of Passover, and all of those things will commemorate the work of redemption that the Lord accomplished, and it will all center around the Messiah who will be there reigning in Jerusalem. And even the last verse of chapter 14 makes it clear, verse 21, verse 20, that everything will be holy to the Lord, and then verse 21, that there will be no Canaanite. That's just a way of metaphorically, or figuratively describing a rebel, a pagan, an idolater, an unbeliever. There will be no Canaanite who enters in to worship the Lord, because only those who are holy unto the Lord will worship him. Okay, I know I went quickly, but let me review these ten prophetic events. Number one... The refinement of the remnant. That was at the end of chapter 13. Number two, the rampage of the nations. Chapter 14, verse 2, and the first part of chapter 12. The retribution of God against those nations was in chapter 12. The The reinforcement of Israel's defenses, also in chapter 12. And then the return of the Lord in chapter 14, verses 3 and following. Then number six, the remorse of the people. The end of chapter 12, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Then the regeneration of Israel in the first part of chapter 13. Then the reckoning of God against his enemies. It's in chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. Then the remarkable reign of Christ in chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. And then finally, the righteous rule of Christ in chapter 14, verses 16 through 21. Now, a text like this, there's a lot of text, and there's a lot of data and a lot of details. And I not only gave you 10 points from this text tonight, I gave you the 10 points from last week's message, which gives us 20 prophetic data points And that's a lot of data, admittedly. It's a lot of eschatology. So I want to end tonight by asking one final question. And that final question is this. In that day, the day of the Lord, the day when Christ returns, in that day, where will you be? Because this is future history. We've already established the fact that of the first 10 prophetic events that Zechariah revealed in his first oracle, seven of them have already been fulfilled or are in the process of being fulfilled. Only three remain to be fulfilled. And of those three, we expanded those three into 10 more points tonight, all of which will be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation period in accordance with and accompanying the return of Christ. So my question for us, for you... Is where will you be when this goes down? If, if you have turned your eyes on the Messiah who was pierced for the sins of those who would believe in him, and if you have like those described in our text, mourned over your sin and turned from it to turn to Christ. And if you have experienced the Spirit's work of regeneration in which He gives you a new heart, a heart that loves God and loves your Savior, if those things are true of you, then guess what? You're going to be coming back with Jesus when he returns. That's amazing. That's what is promised in 1 Thessalonians, in Revelation, here, when it says that the Lord will come with his hosts. That's not just angels. That includes the redeemed. And you will reign with him during his millennial kingdom. And you can read all about that in Revelation chapter 20. And after a thousand years, it will transition into a new heavens and a new earth. And you can read all about that in Revelation 21 and 22. The last three chapters of your Bible is this. But if you have not looked to Christ, if you have not mourned over your sin, if you have not repented and turned to him in saving faith, if you have not been regenerated through the work of the Holy Spirit, such that your life is characterized by a genuine love for God, if that is not true of you, then whether you survive to this point in history or not, the end of your path is a path of destruction. And so we end the book of Zechariah and our study on it with a simple plea. And that plea is, turn to Christ. The name Jesus means, Yahweh saves. And you can join those who, like at the end of chapter 13, say, I belong to Yahweh, and Yahweh is my May that be true of all who hear this text, 2,500 years old and yet so relevant to us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. So much detail, so much data, and yet at the crux of it is a savior who came to redeem and a savior who will return to reign. May our lives be characterized by a genuine love for him. We know that he is coming back. We know that history will end exactly as you have said it will end. And so may that knowledge about the future motivate us to make changes in the present so that we might honor you and be found in your presence, celebrating with the saints for all of eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.